He is worthy of our praise, and it's good to have a church that sings nice and loud. And at this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss the junior church, and let's take our Bibles and go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and we'll go ahead and begin by reading, starting with uh, verse 21. So Mark chapter 1, go ahead and look there, beginning at verse 21. The Bible says in verse 21, And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the authority that you have and the authority over everything that Jesus Christ obtains. I pray this morning that you'll be with us, help us to just get what you want us to get uh, from the preaching of your word. I pray that you'll help me to get out of the way and that I'll only preach what you'd have me to preach, that I'll just preach the word uh, as it is true. It's what we need this morning. I pray, Lord, that you'll use it to, to work in hearts, to change lives. I pray that you'll help us to be more serious about learning about the things of you. And uh, I pray that you'll also uh, be with those that are among us this morning that have never placed their faith and trust in you alone. Uh, those that are here that are, are trusting in a work uh, or maybe being a good person. I pray that today you will show them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they will be saved. Lord, I pray that you'll just... Help us this morning in the way that only you can. I thank you for everyone that's here this morning and uh, for the great singing that we've uh, heard thus far. And I pray that you'll just uh, help us this morning and, and work in our hearts, Lord. May your spirit move among us and just change us to be more like you. In your holy and precious name, amen. Now, when we think of authoritative figures in history, a lot of times we may think of a military commander or maybe some kind of political leader uh, that might come to mind and it could be uh, you know depending on the era of history it could be a good thing or a bad thing but as we just read this passage here this morning the highlight of this passage of those eight verses is no doubt the cosmic authority that Christ obtained and that is the total authority that he had over everything now as Mark uh, John Mark as he previously displayed the authority of Christ that had been given to him by God himself in verses 9 to 11, and then the authority that he had over Satan and sin as he defeated those foes in the wilderness, 
uh, which of course again was Satan in verses 12 and 13, Mark now just further cements the, the truth of God's, of, of Jesus Christ's divine authority and really his deity. That is to say that uh, he is God. He, he was proving uh, in these passages uh, just who he is. And uh, what we're going to do this morning, we're going to break down these verses. Uh, we're just going to go through one by one. I don't have an alliterated outline. I don't have uh, three points. I, I, just got, I just got eight verses, okay, which is fine, right? That's what we're here for. We're here to hear the uh, expository preaching of the word. But this morning, we're going to look at the authority of the Savior. And man, I, I hope... And I pray that through this you will see the authority of Christ and you'll be amazed by it. And you'll just be in awe of it. And that it will drive you to worship Him. Let's look at verse 21 again, the first part there. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day He entered into the synagogue and taught. So Jesus and His four disciples, the four disciples that He had called, that we've seen the last few weeks, uh, go into a place called Capernaum, and this city was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. This was the home of a, a Roman military base, so it was a very important city. And after Christ re- got rejected at Nazareth, this would be where, he, where his ministry headquarters would be. This would be where he would uh, typically go to perform miracles and to teach people. But he didn't come here uh, for no reason. He didn't come here just to have rest. And he didn't come here just to go meet new people and to have a good time. He came to this place for a purpose. And look again at verse 21. Look at the last part of 21. Or the the second part there. It says, And straightway on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. So we see here, that Jesus and these four men, they enter into a synagogue, which, by the way, is a, the, the word meaning, it's a transliteration of a Greek word that means to gather together. It would be like what we have today, a local church. Uh, it would be a place of worship. It was supposed to be a place of worship. It was supposed to be uh, a place where they uh, had services, again, just like we do, where, uh, that just consisted of prayer. And it consisted of praise, and it consisted of the ex, uh, exposition of Scripture. But this synagogue wasn't like that. This synagogue that Jesus entered into in Capernaum was a lifeless and godless place. I like what Stephen Lawson said about this synagogue. He said that this synagogue was a place that had religion, but no repentance. It was a place that had rituals, but no regeneration. It was a place that had rules, but no relationship with the living God. This synagogue was a place that was bound in the chains of darkness, and Satan was reigning and ruling over it. And what was supposed to be the house of God was actually Satan's playground. And God had no say whatsoever in this place. The synagogue was really much like what the city of Smyrna is called in Revelation chapter 2, is Christ called that place a synagogue of Satan. That's what this place was. It was a synagogue of Satan. And we know this to be true because of what we see Jesus did and in the synagogue, and then also the events and the reactions that followed. Look again, look at the, the last uh, two words of verse 21, and look at verse 22. It says, what did Jesus do when he went into the synagogue? He didn't just sit there. It says that he taught and taught. He went there and taught. Look at verse 22. 
It says, And they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus, he goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach those that were in attendance. Now, by the way, this was a common practice of Jesus. This would not be the last time that he would go into a synagogue and teach. He would do this several times. You'll find out as we continue to go through the, the book of Mark. But in synagogues back in these days, it was normal for this to happen. Where visiting rabbis or even laymen that were supposed to be well-versed in the law of God, they would be invited to come up there and, and read scripture and teach. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus taught talked about. We don't know like, what the topic was. We don't know if he used any parables. But by looking at the substance of his typical teachings, we can get a really good idea of what the main thrust of his message might have been. So let's look at a couple places in Mark. Specifically, look at back at verse 15. And we're just going to go to a bunch of places here in Mark just to kind of get an idea of what he probably talked about. Look at Mark chapter 1 verse 15. It says, and saying, Jesus speaking here, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. In other words, turn from your wicked ways, turn from your rituals and your rules and your works and turn to me. Trust in me. Believe the gospel of Christ. Look at chapter 6 verse 12. Mark chapter 6 verse 12. And in the context of this, uh, Jesus is at Nazareth and, and uh, uh, he tells these, his disciples they're going to go and they're going to preach. And he said, you know, if anybody doesn't receive you, if they reject you, then just shake off the dust of your feet. And look at what it says in verse 12 of Mark chapter 6. It says, and they went out and preached that men should repent. Go to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. The Bible says, and, then, and when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Look at chapter 10, verse 15. Chapter 10, verse 15. says in Mark chapter 10, verse 15, Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. So, again, we don't know what kind of parable maybe he, he spoke during this in, while he was in the synagogue, but it's very likely that he, he maybe talked about the kingdom of God, that he talked about the need for repentance, he talked about the need to follow him and the need to be born again. Now, regardless of whatever the topic was, regardless of whether he used a parable or not, there's one thing that we can know without a doubt. We know without a doubt that he called people to believe the gospel because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. So we know this. There's, there's no way that he would let an opportunity like this slip by without telling the gospel. Jesus Christ, he was a great expositor of the law. He was a great expositor of the prophets. And this great teacher, he brought the light of the gospel and he shined it in this dark place that was under the stronghold of Satan. And as he taught the truth of God, we're told that those that were listening were amazed. In Mark chapter 1, we've already read it there, it uses that word astonished. They were astonished. And that comes from a Greek word that means that they were struck with amazement. They were struck out of themselves. If we were to put it in today's terms, we would say that his teaching blew their mind. It shocked them. His doctrine and his teaching and his beliefs were words that just shook them to their core. And the truth of God, it was unlike anything that they had ever heard before. And this astonishment, I, I love how this is a verb. 
that describes a prolonged amazement of the audience. It wasn't like, you know, sometimes maybe you hear a great sermon and you think, man, that was a great sermon. And then three minutes later, you forget about it. You walk out the door, you go to the restaurant, you eat your food, and you don't even know what, I, what was preached, right? No, no. This was a prolonged amazement. This was something that, they, that stuck in their minds. And the truth of God. I tell you what, when the truth of God, when the word of God, when that, when that Holy Spirit gives us understanding, it, it'll do that, won't it? It'll do just that. It will, it'll really give us amazement. We'll be amazed at what he said. When, when, when the Holy Spirit of God gives us understanding and it illuminates scripture, it will do just that. And if you're saved here this morning, you remember, you know, when, that, when you realized that you stood before God and you were condemned as a sinful person, and you were standing condemned before a holy God, and you knew, man, I need to trust Christ, that affected you. That affected you. And by the way, some people, they hear it hundreds of times before the light finally comes on. And it finally clicks. But when you know that you're a sinner and you're standing before a holy God, uh, that affects you. That will move you. When you understand, that will move you to repent and that will move you to trust Christ and it will push you to have faith in the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And the word of God did just that to the people here in the synagogue. The word of God, it truly is a fire that melts the heart. It is a hammer that can break a rock in pieces, as Jeremiah tells us. It, his word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Jesus is teaching it gripped people's hearts. And the way that Jesus taught was much different than the way of the scribes. It was very different from the way that they taught, both in substance and in style. And this is what brought the astonishment. It's to, the Bible tells us that he taught not as the scribes. Let's go back there and look at Mark chapter 1 just to see that. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1 and look at verse 22 again. It says, and they were astonished at his doctrine. It blew their minds for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Uh, what, what was a scribe? Well a scribe was supposed to be a man that was learned in Mosaic law and learned in the sacred writings, and they were supposed to teach the scriptures. But instead of teaching doctrine, instead of teaching scripture, instead they taught rules and regulations and rituals of men. And the teaching of Jesus was so different, and it was so foreign to these people, because the doctrine and the authority that Jesus had came directly from God. And the scribes, they were far more concerned about tradition than they were about truth. Let's go to Mark chapter 7. This is made clearly evident in Mark chapter 7. It's, it's evident in many places, but I like uh, this particular place. Look at Mark chapter 7 and start with verse 1. And I'll just maybe kind of give some commentary along the way here. <clears throat> it says in chapter 7 verse 1, and this here really gives us a prime example of what the scribes and the Pharisees viewed as important. Look what it says in verse 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands, oft eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come to the market, except they wash, they eat not. 
and many other things there be which they have received to hold as a washing of cups and of pots and brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, speaking of Jesus, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Let me stop right there. Uh, it's good to wash your hands before you eat, amen? <laughs> but this, they were not doing this for sanitary reasons. Uh, this was really done for the appearance of piety. It was all a show. Uh, in fact, the way, I haven't done an extensive study on it, but the way that they washed their hands was very specific. Uh, it started out where they would keep their fingers up, and water would be dumping on them like that, and then they'd put their fingers down, and it, it was just a show to make themselves look good. And look what it, and, and we see here that it, he, they ask, why, Jesus, why are your disciples, why are they not following the tradition of the elders? Look at verse 6. And he answered and said unto them, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied, speaking of Isaiah, of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You could also say that uh, they honor him with their acts and their deeds, but their heart is far from him. And look at, well, yeah, look at verse 7. We see here that the doctrine of Jesus, again, remember, the doctrine of Jesus, it should have been very familiar to people in the synagogue, but it wasn't, it wasn't a familiar doctrine at all, and verse 7 tells us exactly why. Look at verse 7. Howbeit, in vain, and remember, this is speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees, howbeit, in vain, do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They taught the commandments of men. They taught what they thought. They taught what they believed. Look at verse 8. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. He says, Listen, you scribes and you Pharisees, you just teach what you want to teach. You just teach your opinions. You just teach your, your thoughts. You teach your rituals. And, and there's no scriptural basis for it. And he says, you elevate the laws and the rules of men above the word of God. And then he gives us a great example in verse 10. Look what it says. For Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother. And whoso curseth his father or mother, let him die the death. Now we know, church, listen, this is a very important command to honor your father and mother. You ought to help your, your parents out if they get old. You, you are responsible to help them, to take care of them. And that's what he's saying here. The law of Moses makes that very clear. But look what it says in verse 11. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. So what he's saying here is, uh, this Corban was, again, a man-made ritual, a man-made law, that made it so that you were exempt from financially helping your parents if they were in dire financial need. What this was, was uh, you would say, oh, well, you know, sorry, Mom and Dad, but my money's all tied up. It's dedicated to God. I'm dedicating it to Him. So I'm sorry. I'm exempt. I cannot help you financially. You're on your own. It was a loophole. And it did not come from God. It did not come from the Word of God. It came from these rabbis and these scribes. And look what it says in verse 12. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or for his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. So he's saying here, hey, this is what you guys do. This is, your, this is what you typically do. This is the norm for you guys. This is one example, but you do this in a lot of other ways. And these scribes, we gather from this, that these scribes elevated the rules of scribes above the word of God. 
Uh, with this in mind, I mean, just imagine the kind of teaching that would have taken place in the synagogue. No scriptural basis. Nothing to do with the law of God. It was all ceremonial laws that were made by men. And with, with all of this, we know that the scribes, they majored on minors. They made mountains out of molehills. And they taught man-made rules. And they neglected the truth of God. And those that were listening in the synagogue, they were used to hearing uh, teaching that only quoted other scribes and rabbis. So their authority was based on other men instead of God. Do you see the problem here? Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, look, uh, opinions and a blatant disregard for the scriptures was the norm in this synagogue and in many synagogues. And there was a massive difference in the teaching of the scribes and that of Christ. And I'll tell you what, here's, here's something that will, that's so true. And just think about this, okay? Once opinions and once traditions get repeated and repeated and repeated enough, eventually they get viewed as subtle law and truth. That's what was happening here. It got repeated so many times, and they began to believe it themselves. But the synagogue audience that Jesus spoke to in Capernaum, they were used to, thus saith man. But what did Jesus Christ do? He went in there and he said, thus saith the Lord. They were used to confusing and complicated rituals and endless rules, but Christ taught them freedom from bondage. These uh, scribes, they would lay heavy burdens of man-made laws on people that they themselves wouldn't keep. But you know what Jesus Christ did? Jesus cut through the tangled mass of red tape and he took them directly to the truth of the Bible. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. If you're still awake this morning, say amen. amen. just want to make sure. I know some people had a late night last night. Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. <clears throat> Look at verse 1. It says... Matthew 23, verse 1, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes, notice that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens, and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." In other words, here they are, they're, they're making up all these rules, all these laws, all these traditions, and they don't even make the smallest effort to follow them themselves. And Jesus, he directly attacks them there, but he also directly attacks them in Matthew chapter 11 uh, in a different way. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11 and see that. Matthew chapter 11, he, it's a direct attack on the scribes and Pharisees. And by the way, uh, it was warranted. Look at verse 28 of Matthew chapter 11. And just imagine how relieving the words of Jesus Christ would be to people that were in this bondage. Look at what verse 28 says. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This right here was an invitation for all the people that were bogged down by religious rules and rituals to come find real peace in him. What Jesus was saying here is that salvation and forgiveness from God and peace with God did not come from any of these rituals and these rules, but rather from faith in him. And all those that uh, came to him, they could find rest in him and freedom from bondage. And the truth that Christ spoke, it would bring life to the spiritually dead place. 
And they, these people in the synagogue, they were no doubt used to feeding on the dry husk of rabbinical teaching, but Jesus fed them the living word of God. And he did it with boldness that would satisfy their spiritual hunger like nothing else could. And I want you to know this morning, church, listen close. This is exactly what the people of Capernaum needed, and this is exactly what you need. It's exactly what you need. It's exactly what I need. We need the Word of God. You know, there are many Christians that are sitting in church this morning, and maybe even this one. I don't know, I'm not sure, but they don't want what they need. There are people that don't attend church here because they don't want what they need. And you say, what do you mean by that? They don't want the Word of God. There's so many people, they want a comedy show, they want story time with pastor, they want hobby horses, they want preferences and extra biblical ideas, they want a political rally, they want opinions. You don't need that. You don't need any of that junk. And that's all it is, by the way. It's junk. Because that will do absolutely nothing for you. You need the scriptures. You need, thus saith the Lord. That's what you need. And that, right there, when you get that, when you get the word of God, <laughs> let's go to Psalm 19. It's <laughs> a good transition point, right? But look, when you get the Word of God, that the Word of God, church, is what's going to give you spiritual life. The Word of God is what's going to give you refreshment. The Word of God is what's going to give you guidance. My thoughts, my opinions, my preferences, my standards, and that of anybody else isn't going to do anything for you. Nothing. Look at Psalm 19. Look at verse 7. I love this passage. You know, the Bible speaks a lot of itself because it is so incredible. And it says in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect. Let me stop right there. My thoughts are not perfect. Look what else it says. Converting the soul. You know what? I can't convert anybody. My opinions, my thoughts, my ideas, they're not going to convert anybody. The only thing that's going to convert people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look what it says. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Hey, listen, before we continue, understand, I'm a fallible man. So if I get up here and I preach my ideas... I just might be wrong. But if I preach the word of God, I'm doing all right. Look at verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And the word of God is what we need. The word of God, it is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 16 here. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. It says, all scripture. How much scripture? All. All, all scripture. 
is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for our set of beliefs. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now we know that this uh, book was written to a pastor, but listen, it's for you too. It's good for you to know. Anytime we sit down and we learn the scriptures, it's a very profitable time. It's very profitable. And I tell you what, it would be such a waste of time for everybody, for me to get up here and to not preach a living word of God when it's right here. It would be a waste. But you know, there's a lot of churches that, that do that. And there's a lot of people that they want. And that really, uh, we, when we think of those that have itching ears, a lot of times um, we think of, 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 of bad theology and soft doctrine. But a lot of times it's just, it's different. It's just people wanting opinions. It's just people wanting everything but the Word of God. But this is what we need because the Word of God is life-changing. And you need the Word of God. And these people, they were amazed in the synagogue because they were realizing their need for it too. And the truth of God, it had been under a bushel for so long, but Christ shined it again for these people. Now as the light of God's truth shined in this dark place that was controlled by Satan, not only were the people that were listening astonished, but the forces of Satan were rattled. And you know what? When the truth of God, when the gospel goes forth, demons are awakened and Satan is no doubt agitated. Let's go back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, look at verse 23. In verse 23, it says, And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. So, there's a man here in the synagogue, and he had what Mark calls an unclean spirit. And this is a term that's used interchangeably with demons, and a demon is simply a fallen angel. He's in the army of Satan. And this man was possessed. He was controlled by Either a demon or many demons. This kind of indicates maybe plurality here. Uh, so there could have been more than one. But it said that this man was a man with an unclean spirit. Now what's interesting about this is that Mark uses the same grammar that Paul did when he spoke of those that were in Christ. So those that are saved, listen, if you're saved, you are in Christ. He dwells in you. And guess what? If he dwells in you, no demon's going to be dwelling in you. It can't. It's impossible. There's no demon that's going to dwell in you if you are in Christ. But this man had a demon. He was possessed and he was controlled by a satanic force. And the presence in the word of Jesus Christ, it was, so, it was too much for the demon inside of this man. It tells us that he cried out. And this crying out means to raise a cry from the depth of the throat. So this demon that was possessing this man was speaking with this man's throat, and it was a deep and throaty and terrible cry. Well, what did he cry out? Look again at verse 24. It says, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. So this demon basically asked Jesus Christ the question, What business, Jesus, do you have with us? What, what do we have in common with you? Why are you interfering with us? And truly, we know from this that they knew that they belonged to a radically different kingdom than that of Christ. But we also know from that verse 
and that they knew that their time was limited. As they asked that question, art thou come to destroy us? You know, Matthew 25, 41 tells us that hell is prepared for Satan and his demons. And they know this. But then, this demon confirms the deity of Christ as he states, I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. This demon was terrified of Christ and the holiness that clothed him. And I, I know it's true what one pastor said about this. He said that the testimony of this demon to the holiness of Christ is a lot better of a testimony than you'll find in most liberal pulpits today. And that is so true. Listen, he is a thrice holy God. He is holy, holy, holy. And this church has to proclaim that truth. You know, if we don't understand the holiness of God, we don't know how terrible we are. We don't understand how sinful we are. And truly, this testimony that this demon had of his holiness, it speaks to the fact that he is apart from all others. And this is a definite article here. Look at it there again. It says, the Holy One of God. He is the Holy One. There's nobody else. And this title really is a sum of all that God is. And the, the demon here, he uses, he invokes this title that is found in the book of Isaiah. And this title is found 26 times here in, in that book, the Holy One. Let's go there. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. I've got a few places I want to look at. We're not going to go to all 26 of them, so don't get nervous. But uh, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4. This is an Old Testament title that speaks to the sum of who God is. Look at Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4. It says in verse 4, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Go to Isaiah chapter 12. See this name yet again. That's used of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, again, speaks to his deity, speaks to the fact that he was God. Look at Isaiah chapter 12, verse 6. It says, cry out and shout. Thou inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. And lastly, go to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. <clears throat> Look at verse 14. Isaiah 41, verse 14. The Bible says, Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So look, all of these speak to the awesome wonder that is God. He is the Holy Redeemer. He is the Holy Judge. He is the Great Holy One, and this demon knew that. And you know, it's, it's mind-boggling to me that these demons, they saw very plainly who he was, but the scribes and Pharisees, they were so spiritually blind that they could not see what was right in front of them. But as this demon spoke, Jesus then displays his authority over all principalities and all powers of darkness. Let's go back to Mark chapter 1 and see that. Mark chapter 1. Look at verse 25. Mark chapter 1, verse 25. The Bible says, And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. See what Jesus did there? I want to kind of examine a little bit what Jesus did here to this man that had a demon. But I also want to point out, and listen, I want to point out what he did not do with this man that had a demon. He didn't act foolish. He didn't make it a show. He didn't go through some magical ceremony like the Jewish uh, exorcist of his day. He didn't even take off his robe 
and cause somebody to fall backwards into a crowd of people. Didn't even do that. You, you understand what I'm saying here? <laughs> no. He avoided theatrics is what I'm saying. He avoided drama. And he simply demonstrated the authority of God because he had the authority of God. This verse says he rebuked him. He displayed authority. That means that he taxed him with fault and he said, hold thy peace and come out of him. Now that phrase, hold thy peace, it kind of seems to be maybe like a a soft request, like a a very gentle, oh, would you please come? No, (laughs) that's not what it actually means. This was actually a very sharp and incisive and vigorous command that was said with authority. That that word, uh, that phrase, hold thy peace, it means to become speechless. It means to close your mouth with a muzzle. It was a very sharp phrase. It's the same uh, term used in Matthew 22 where it says that Jesus put the Sadducees to silence. So he authoritatively commanded this demon to be quiet and to come out. And when he did this, this demon had no choice but to leave this man's body because Christ had and does have supreme authority. And while the host of hell was mobilized to constantly oppose Christ, he always overcame. Look at verse 26. It says, And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. So after Jesus commanded with authority for this demon to leave this man, uh, with vindictiveness on the demon's part, in protest to this command, it says that he tore this man. It means to convulse. Medical writers use this term for the rotating of the stomach. Uh, The Gospel of Luke, in his account, he describes him as being thrown down to the ground. So this was a very violent scene. And that's what happened when Jesus showed the authority that he had. And this healing, it had a ripple effect among those that were in the synagogue and beyond. Look at verse 27. It says, And they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. So these people, who were before astonished, now they were amazed. But this amazement was an amazement that was mingled with fear and terror. Now imagine being here for this. You would be amazed, and you too would be fearful, and you too would be terrified. I mean, just imagine uh, having a man in this church that was demon-possessed, and imagine if Jesus was here. And here this demon cries out with a very deep and and, and throaty and terrible cry and and asks Jesus, what do you want from me? Why are you here? And then Jesus Christ sharply commands him to come out. And imagine uh, that demon as he came out, he just threw the man on the ground violently and he was gone. We would be amazed. And we would be like, man, what? We'd be terrified. But in their fright... And in their amazement, we're told that they questioned everything that happened. And the Greek shows this to be an animated, prolonged discussion. Again, it wasn't just something they said, oh, wow, that's cool. Talk about it for three minutes and move on. No, this went on. It was animated. They were, they were discussing this. There might have been some debates. And, and as they considered what had just transpired. And what they had seen and what they had heard, it was new. It was uncommon. It was unprecedented. His teaching was like anything they had ever heard before. And they called it new doctrine. But again, remember, it wasn't new. As John Phillips said, he said it was timeless truth, stripped of all traditionalism and all error, and it was truth backed by a life in touch moment by moment with heaven. 
But compared to the dry as dust teaching of these rabbis, this teaching of Jesus Christ, it would really be like a glass of cold water to a thirsty soul. It would be like bread and meat to those people that were just so spiritually hungry and starving to death. It was just what they needed. And again, I say this as we get ready to kind of wrap this up here. We need doctrine, church. We need scriptural truth. This doctrine, the truth of the word of God, it should have been familiar, right? But it was foreign. Uh, but also the authority that he had over demons was, was also foreign. Look again at verse 27. It says, And they were all amazed in so much that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? But look what it says here. For with authority he commandeth, uh, commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. So these spectators that were here in the synagogue, they acknowledged that Christ did have the authority uh, over demonic powers, and they said uh, that they obey when he gives a command. And this commanding is a military term that speaks to the, uh, the fact that it was an orderly array. It speaks to the fact that Christ had the host of Satan under his absolute power at all times. And the, the words of Christ ring true, as he said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, before he ascended into heaven, as he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And aren't you thankful today that you serve a powerful Savior? And by the way, again, we'll see this later on, but this would not be the last time that Christ exercised dominion over Satan and his wicked forces. He would do many other great miracles, I like this again, but he would also overcome the forces of evil as he died on the cross and he took upon himself the payment of our sin, uh, the payment of death for our sin. And he would also exercise dominion over Satan as he rose again three days later after his death. And one day, listen, one day after the millennial reign of Christ, Satan and every single demon will be cast into the lake of fire to be tormented. And this will be the final and complete victory over Satan in every satanic force. And Satan and sin and death will be completely overthrown, never to reign and never to rule ever again. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. You know, a lot of people, it's just so easy for people to have an earthly mindset and maybe you feel beaten down and, and you feel like you're losing all the time and nothing's going your way and everything's going wrong, but you can know that in the end, Christ is going to make all things new. You can know in the end that he will have complete and utter victory. And it's never going to change. Look at verse 10 of Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth was, uh, and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for him. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So this right here, church, listen, this is where Satan's reign is over. It's done. That's it. But with all of this in consideration, I want you to consider this morning, as it talks about the book of life, I want you to consider, will your name be found in the book of life? 
Look, if you're not saved this morning, then you are doomed to face the wrath of God. And as I said earlier, surely in our midst this morning, there are many that will probably even like the scribes and the, uh, those sitting in the synagogue as they were in spiritual darkness. There are likely some here this morning whose eyes are blinded. They have not seen the truth. And without a doubt, there are some here this morning uh, who who've had, have had the God of this world blinding their minds. But the glorious light, listen, the glorious light of Jesus Christ has been preached this morning. It's shined, so won't you trust him today? Won't you come to this great light that is Jesus Christ? If the Holy Spirit of God is drawing you and making this truth clear to you today, then come to him today. God gave the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the synagogue, and he's doing just that in this place this morning in your heart as you sit here. So come to Him by faith. Trust in only Him for forgiveness of sin. You and I, we've all sinned, and we are in desperate need of the Savior, Jesus Christ, to get forgiveness from God. He is the only one that can reconcile us to God. He came to save us. Now, you might be here this morning, and I know some people have this mindset. They think, I'm too broken, I'm too sinful, I'm too empty to be saved. Hey, listen, Christ came for people like you. And, and by the way, that describes all of us, right? We're all sinful, we're all broken, we're all empty people in need of Jesus Christ. He did this while he was on earth. He, he saved those types of people and he does it still today. But you need to acknowledge your need for him and repent. He is the only one that's able to save us from our sin. There's no man-made rule or good deed or act or law or rituals as these people taught in the synagogue. It's only through Jesus Christ. And the authority that Jesus displayed in his teaching... And the miracles, they were just so mind-blowing. In this passage, we know that his, his name and his works had spread with lightning speed by word of mouth. Let's go back there one more time to Mark chapter 1. And look at the last verse of our text this morning. In verse 28. Mark chapter 1 verse 28. It says, And immediately... His fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. So as the light of Jesus, as it shined in this dark synagogue of Capernaum, it quickly shined throughout all of Galilee. And this shows us, church, the, the impact that the gospel has on sinners. It is life-changing. It is incredible. It is powerful. And listen, it is worth talking about. It is worth telling other people about. This gospel has changed the course of our lives and the destination of our soul. So look, if God has changed your life, shouldn't you let the world know? Shouldn't you let people know? We need to testify of the Holy One of God so that other two, others too can get out of spiritual darkness and into the light of Christ. When Jesus said in John 12, 46, I am, I am come a light into the world, and whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. It is awesome that he allows us to dwell in the light, isn't it? And we serve a great Savior. And we ought to stand in awe of the wonder of Christ. Now here we are today, first day of 2023. And while we are 2,000 years removed from this passage, I want you to understand this morning that it is still relevant to our day. Hey, listen, Jesus has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still speaks with authority in his book. 
This is the authority. He still has the ability to deliver us from the bonds of sin. He can still meet needs. He can still give you peace. He can still save your soul. He can still overcome the weakness of your flesh. And you may, you may feel this morning, even as a child of God, you're in the bonds of sin. But he can overcome if you would just yield to him. Give control over to this great God. And as we get ready to close this morning, please listen. With the start of this new year, I want to challenge each of us to do a few things. First, I want to challenge each of us to have a fresh commitment to telling others about this, the greatest thing that we possess, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, isn't it awesome? We deserve to have the wrath of God poured out on us, and yet we have such a great salvation in His mercy and in His grace. Look what He's given us. But also, I want to encourage you all to have a fresh commitment to the Word of God. To, to commit to learning. To commit to growing. To commit to studying. And, and, and also abiding by the truth of God. To make it a priority in your life. Because again, every believer needs this. Commit to being faithful to church. Man, commit to being here on Wednesday nights to learn uh, about theology, the study of God. Commit to being here on Sunday nights. Commit to learning the scriptures. I tell you what, it won't hurt you. It'll only help you. Allow God's word to saturate your everyday life too. Listen, the, the, the times that you learn about God, it shouldn't just be on Sundays or Wednesday nights. Every day. Every day in the word of God. Every day in the book. And it will really make a, a tremendous impact on our life. It'll impact our closeness with God. It'll impact our joy, our knowledge of the truth, our worship, our growth, and victory over sin on this journey of the Christian life. It'll impact so many things. You know, in this new year, a lot of people, and I know some people are really against this, but a lot of people, they have resolutions or goals, which is, you know, whatever. But people say, well, in 2023, I'm going to commit to doing this, this, or this. Well, listen, if you want a better life in 2023, then be committed to the Word of God. You want a better marriage? Then be committed to the Word of God. If you want to raise uh, godly children to be godly adults, then be committed to the Word of God. If you want to make better decisions in the new year and you want wisdom and guidance in this world full of confusion and foolishness, then commit to the Word of God. If you want to be filled and led by the Holy Spirit of God in this new year, then be committed to His Word. Be committed. You won't go wrong when you do that. And may we never be like the scribes and focus on man-made religion and rituals, but rather the truth of God, because this is what's going to change our life. We need to stay committed to the never-changing word of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.